You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello, I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and welcome to the game, the football podcast from the Times, where Premier League fans can get every goal, every game, everywhere. Now, I am excited, and I am delighted, and I am stoked, and I'm hyped, and I'm ant because this week our guests are so good that we only need two of them. That's right, we have Julian Lawrence. You can watch him Sunday night on BT Sport, the European football show, or if you speak French, you can uh, read him in Le Parisien. And also joining us from uh, his lovely estate in Harrogate is. It's Rory K. Smith. Welcome. Because of the excellent, versatile guests this week in our debate, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to talk about that weird thing that is European football because we have the guests to do it. But we're going to start this week by uh, looking at Liverpool, who, as we record, are top of the table. Bear in mind, Arsenal-Chelsea hasn't happened yet in our little patch of the universe. So don't complain if we don't talk Gooners and Blues. All right, so we're going to get to Vincent Tan in a moment, but we need to start with Liverpool just because they're at the top. Julian, I want to throw something to you that our boss, Tony Evans, wrote, suggested, floated, which um, got several people a little bit annoyed. Might Liverpool be better without Steven Gerrard? I don't think they are, but I would never tell Tony. But is there some logic, some coherence to it that when you have some Alan Henderson Lucas in there, things move quicker or whatever? Yeah, I do think so. And it was really simple. I was really looking forward to the Arsenal-Liverpool game a few weeks back. And I was so disappointed by Gerrard. So, so disappointed. Seaman captain you're talking about. I know, but I was so disappointed. Maybe it was not a good day for him, but it was not fitting in that team at all. A team where you've got Sturridge, at the time Sturridge was not injured. Sturridge and Sturridge up front where you had all those quick players in midfield, quick feet, quick passing, quick vision. Everything was quick. But Gerard, and I think that they're actually playing better without him. Right. I, I want to, we're going to take a quick detour to England since we're all huge England fans here. But it just struck me as rather unusual in on, on the back of that Gerard point. At the World Cup, you're going to have a situation where you have the England captain and some people suggesting that his club side might be better without him. You have the England goalkeeper who basically lost his place, even though, of course, he played this weekend. You have the England left-back, if you believe Baines is going to be the England left-back while he's been injured. If you believe it's going to be Ashley Cole, who has been the England left-back for the last 10 years, he looks as if he's basically lost his place. Going forward, you've know, you got people like Sturridge, who's been injured. You've got people like like Welbeck, who's in and out, not a bona fide starter. And you've got Carrick, who may or may not be a starter, but he's obviously been hurt for a while. It's pretty depressing, right? Well, it depends how you look at it, to be honest. I take your point, absolutely. But international football, I think, for for too long in this country, and probably in other countries as well, well, we've kind of seen international football is the way you select the national team as being like an amalgam of the 11 best footballers that you've got. I don't think that's quite right. I think it's a more subtle arrangement than that. You need to pick the best team regardless of whether they're, they're necessarily the best players. The best example is Italy in 2006 where Lippi got rid of the kind of do you play Totti and El Piero thing by saying like we're only going to have one of them and that meant leaving out one of your, one of your best players but was better for the team, which I think is a fair understanding of that situation. So I think if you look at it with England, yeah, a lot of these players aren't first choice anymore. Quite a few of them through age, to be honest. I mean, Gerard and Cole, I think the situations are similar in, in that it's not that they've become bad players, it's just the age has caught up with them a little bit and, and they're not quite the players they were. But maybe that's good for England because, well, for a start, in terms of Gerard. England don't play that sort of high-pressing game that Liverpool play, so he, he fits into that system much more naturally. His slower, Julian's quite right, I think, he plays at a slower pace now than the rest of the Liverpool team, so he does look occasionally like a man out of kind of his comfort zone. With England, that's not relevant. But the point with England, I think, is that, yeah, Danny Welbeck isn't first choice in Manchester United, but he can do a job for England in a certain system. And you pick the system, you don't pick the players. Yes, I guess the, the idea here is how much confidence do we have in, in Roy Hodgson, and then he can come up with a, with a system that you know suits the qualities of his, of his best players. And I, I personally agree. If you, if you are going to go and play the uh, lovely Catenaccio he played it, or the, an evolution of the Catenaccio, <laughs> He played at Euro 2012, something slightly more progressive, maybe more pace, uh, but on, on the wings or up front. Um, Jared's not a bad bet in the middle, especially if he's going to be maybe a little bit more rested going into the, the that, World Cup. That's the other factor. If you, if you think about all the players who are either injured or kind of out of favour at the moment, the one thing that we always say with England is that, and as you say, we're, we're all massive England fans, and I, I personally can't wait for the xenophobia that will follow them winning the World Cup. But all those players having a rest is a good thing, surely. That's always the problem with England. The players are knackered when they get to the tournament. 
Liverpool are top of the table for now, but it almost seems, Julian, I get the sense that there isn't too much faith that they will be there. And there's almost this, this narrative unfolding that Luis Suarez, who's got this, there'll be some this fearsome streak, what is it, 19 goals in 12 games. Mm. He's basically carrying them. And is that a bit unfair of, with Rodgers? Because when Rodgers was at Swansea, he obviously developed a, a reputation as being like a real sort of systems, tactics, possession type guy. And then he had his ups and downs in, in the first year. Now they're doing much better. And you almost feel that he's not getting lauded. Why is he not getting lauded as much as obviously some of his players are? And is that a fair assessment? I think he deserves credit. I think he's doing a fantastic job. And Liverpool is a bit like Arsenal. No one really believes that they can go on and, and win it. Everybody talks about Chelsea and City and probably rightly so. But yeah, Wenger is getting a lot of praise and Rodgers isn't. Yeah, which is weird. It took a while though. It did take a while before everyone stopped saying, oh, this was a flash in the pan. It's the easy fixtures. It's all that. It took at least three or four months before Arsenal started getting taken seriously. Yeah, no, that's true. And but I think people should take Rogers and, and Liverpool seriously. And Rogers really? is doing great. Apart from when he played three at the back, because he played that too much and he cost them some a few points that you know if, I don't know why he kept playing that system that clearly was not working in certain games. But I think they will you know if Suarez stays like that, which is possible he can finish the season exactly the same way as he, he's done the last two or three months, then they'd be contenders for sure. Gab, I've said on, on, on here before, and it's got me in trouble with Liverpool fans on Twitter, which is very difficult to do, as I'm sure you can imagine, that I don't think Rodgers is quite the kind of saviour of world football that he's sometimes presented as. I do think he's still a manager who's learning his trade and he's, he makes mistakes, like Julian says, with the three five two. He stuck with that far too long after it became clear it wasn't yeah. working. But he deserves, I think, a huge amount of credit for the fact that at Swansea, as you say, he was a system manager. He was, this is, this is how we play and the players fit into that. And he's changed that for Suarez because when you have a player in that rich vein of form with that much talent, that's the art of good management is recognising your resources and saying, right, I will adapt to that. So I think from that point of view, yeah, he maybe has gone away from what he, how, how he kind of made his name. But that is good management. That's being flexible. That's being kind of versatile and thinking on your feet. From that point of view, he deserves a huge amount of credit. Speaking of Suarez, he obviously signed this contract last week. And there was a cynical part of me that looked at this and said, what does this mean other than the fact that he's getting more money? Money which he deserves. Although somebody else pointed out to me like, oh, great. He's making one third as much as Cristiano Ronaldo. He's making yeah. less than Gareth Bale. Like... You know, are you sure this is such a great deal? <laughs> I'm assuming both parties put some clauses in there to avoid a repeat of last summer. And I'm purely speculating. And Rory, you may have more, more inside information than I do. But I would guess that there is a clause in there that probably prevents Suarez from going to another English club. And I would also imagine that there's a clause in there that stipulates some kind of release fee. And there may even be a clause in there that, you know, somehow modulates his contract should Liverpool not be in the Champions League. Uh, is all of this plausible? I think all of that is more than plausible. Both parties have been very kind of reticent to reveal any, any sort of details about the contract, but we do know that there is a clause that applies, I think, to foreign clubs rather than English clubs, that Liverpool's view is that there is now no risk of him leaving for another Premier League team. I would imagine that there is a release fee. Uh, I don't think many, many contracts get written nowadays without a release fee, and I imagine that there is a release fee that changes depending on where Liverpool finish in the league. So I would guess that if they do make the Champions League, the release fee is probably quite high, and if they don't make the Champions League, it's probably a little bit lower. What would be interesting to know, and I, and I don't know, is whether the lower release fee if they're not in the Champions League is near the £40 million mark which is what they thought the clause was last summer or whether Liverpool have raised that a decent amount to represent his good form this season Yeah, I, I would imagine it's a release fee and it's probably not all that high because again I, I go back to this 170 grand a week for what he's contributing to the club for his standing for the way he's been before I mean when he's not biting and getting himself suspended it's a very good deal I think and even that 200 grand a week is a good deal you know in the reality of if you look at other players in that bracket I, I think they've done well now I, I want to ask about the story which I think has really fascinated me this Vincent Tan Malky Mackay thing at the risk of getting a little bit too sort of media-ish about this, to read like the last week, you would think that Vincent Tan is like, you know, a Bond villain who drowns puppies and then eats them raw. Nobody has seen his side. All it's been is like, Malky's doing a fantastic job, the chairman interfering, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to put this out this to you first, Julian, since you're another foreigner coming into this country. <laughs> Could it be that Vincent Tan looks at this and says, okay, so last season... In the championship, my club, Cardiff, spent more money in terms of net spending than anybody else in the division. And we had a higher wage bill than just about everybody else. And we spent more money by some margin, by about 30%. And we got promoted. And analytics people keep telling us uh, that uh, like when we 
Matthew Syed had a piece on this recently, that, uh, of course, you know, net spend and wages are the key to uh, achieving results and whatever. This season, we get into the Premier League, and I spend more money than every single club in the Premier League, except for Manchester City and Chelsea and Arsenal by, like, a factor of, like, 100 grand, which is nothing. And there I am, and I'm kind of in 15th place, and I watch it, and I see, like, you know, we play pretty crummy football, like we kind of played last year, and this is par for the course, and I'm entitled to go and ask, hey, um, do we overspend on these guys? Are you, are you supposed to be doing better? I mean, is this a completely insane viewpoint that nobody can see? No, I think you're spot on. So you agree with me. Yeah. You and I are part of Team Tan. Well, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> Team Tan, but, but I've been watching them closely because Mrs. L, obviously, is from there, so all the family is sitting together. From Malaysia. Yeah. I do think they should do better. They should be higher in the table. Even if they've just been promoted there this first season, they've got experienced player in there, in that squad. But how can they do better when he's constantly interfering? Well, maybe that's the issue. Maybe it's more in a relationship. It's clearly a relationship issue anyway. But I do think that they could do better. I still think that Mikey McKay is the perfect guy for the job and that he should stay in place and, and everything. And I really like him. And, and you're right, I think he's a very decent guy and a good manager. But I think, I think Vincent Tan, as weird as he is, can ask questions and can say, listen, I'm not really happy because with all the money we spend, with the wage bill we have, you know, we should do better than that. And he did say after the Man City game to Mikey McKay, I want us to play like that every single week, which I know is... It's not possible. And, but I, st- I, I think you've got a point. I think you can be disappointed by the results so far. The best example is Gary Medell. So when, when Ian Moody got sacked, the director of recruitment or whatever he was, there was, there was a similar outcry of Vincent Tan, terrible, blah, blah, blah. Gary Medell was being offered to Spanish and Italian clubs for seven, seven or eight million euros. And Cardiff paid 11. So I think that Tan does have the right to ask the question, maybe you didn't spend the money that wisely. But at the same time, it seems to go beyond that. And it almost seems personal between Tan and Mackay that, yeah, Mackay did overspend on certain players and he maybe didn't spend that wisely and results probably should be better given the money they invested and all that. But if that's the case, surely, if you're unhappy, you just sack your manager. You don't create this hue and cry and you don't spend two or three months trying to engineer a position so that the manager has to resign, which is what Tam's been doing. But that's what's been disappointing, right? Because I and I hate to criticise the, the, the media, but really, we've had a weird... I mean, I, I picked up one newspaper, a broadsheet newspaper, on Saturday and it was like, is this the worst owner in the history of yeah, football? You know, that, yeah. and admittedly, right, Tam is a weirdo, he, he looks a bit funny and, and obviously the, the, the stupid bluebird dragon and blue and red is all silly and he lives far away and I'm sure he's surrounded by yes men and bootlickers and whatever but on some level he can look at these numbers like everybody else and he might also come to the conclusion that hey this is a club that they were in what an administration twice in the last 10 years but Gav do you not think that it, it's very hard to afford him the credit of being able to kind of have, a, have an intelligent viewpoint on the football in terms of saying well we look at these figures and we spent so much money and we should be doing better when you look at what he's done in the past and you know he's changed the colour of the kit does he think it'll make them stronger he encouraged Mackay to get his players yeah, to but, shoot more did okay. he want them to pass do you, you know, know what I mean okay but hang on I, I'm going to trump you here right the person who used to manage England and who then managed Tottenham and who you know is on my TV every weekend you know, he used to go see a faith healer. So yeah, yeah, I, I think I think to some degree we have to take a step back and look at this on merit. And and I agree with you. He's done some 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 very silly things. There's clearly a very obvious disconnect between him and basic football culture in this country. And you can throw it at him. But by the same token, this whole like Malky the, the martyr. Look, if if Malky Mackay gets sacked, and now it appears he won't get sacked, what's going to happen? He's going to have a payoff, which I've read is going to be close to three million pounds. His reputation is sky high. He'll be in the running for another job. Now, what happened if Malky had never met Mr. Tan? Where would he be now? He would be just another promising manager in the championship working on a shoestring budget, maybe at some club where he he has no money, and it's really, really difficult to get out of there. So... If Malky goes, he's going to end up in a pretty good position, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, he. I mean, I don't think any of us should feel sorry for Malky Mackay in that sense. Is he? Yeah, like you say, he'll get the payoff. He's not going to resign, and he will get another job, no question. And he does, as Julian says, he deserves to get another job. He's a good. He's a good manager. Personally, I think the way that Tan looks has contributed to the way the story's been covered. But just Tan does look like a Bond villain, and he does act like a Bond villain. So it's very easy to kind of cast him as a Bond villain. You, you know, the, the the trousers and the armpits thing that that is coming back in vogue. I'm told. <laughs> well, that, that's how I wear also, all of my trousers. Russell Brand was wearing them that way the other week when I saw him. Um, but at the same time, I think there is no question that the way that he has behaved towards Mackay does suggest not only that it's not a genuine footballing objection. To be honest, it feels personal. 
Is this the price you... Because obviously the Premier League works as a global brand and whatever, partly because of its openness to foreign players, foreign managers, and foreign owners. Which is 11 out of 20 are owned by foreigners. And it seems to me we're very happy to accept their money and their investment. But once here, you have to act the way some mythical behind-the-scenes English chairman who owned the local like steel mill might have worked 50 years ago. In other words, you back the manager, right? So if you don't give the guy money to spend, you're not backing him. You're somehow hurting him. You must never be quoted anywhere. And it, and it struck me that most owners that are seen as good owners seem to follow that path. Even the ones like Cronky and the Glazers figured out a long time ago, I'm just going to sit back and collect my checks here. You're never going to hear me talk about the team or do anything. And should there be a bit of a, of, of a paradigm? Should we step, step back here a little and say, like, you know what, maybe sometimes it is better for these people to be a little more involved? Yeah, I think so. I think some people can help it. Some owners can help it. What's which really annoyed me this week with the Vincent Tan story is that people were starting to say we need to control takeovers and ownerships and, you know, the, the Premier League needs to do something so we don't have weirdos like Vincent Tan. You know, Vincent Tan has done more good for the club, to be fair, than bad at Cardiff. He backed them financially. They got promoted. He's got a good manager in. Yes, he's a weirdo. If he was a young American guy dressed cool and good looking, then probably like Rory said, all of that would not have happened or not on that level. But I don't think how bad it is, it, it is for the Premier League to have a Vincent Tan. You know, I would rather that than the people who went to Portsmouth, for example, and just sung the club. Yeah, but they were him. foreign too, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But which means that not all foreigners are bad. Where's Peter's story from? All right. <laughs> but that, no, that, I mean, that's a factor that we've got this perception that it is foreign owners, but it's not. There's a there's been loads of dreadful English club owners that are just as bad, that are just as interfering, that are just as power well, mad. They it, might not look as foreign, but they are just as bad as owners. Because nationalities are relevant. Yeah, it, it's funny. If you were to take a survey, I think, of Premier League fans of who the worst owner in the Premier League is, I would assume that. Well, actually, Glazer would probably win because there's more United fans yeah. than anybody else. But I assume after that, you know, Vincent Tan would be up there. But I'm assuming Mike Ashley would probably finish in the top three or four. And uh, and of course, he's you know he, he's not foreign. Although Wait. George would say that he is foreign because he's. Uh, <laughs> He's a cockney. I mean, situation's evolving anyway. I, it, as, a, as we tape this, it appears that uh, the club chairman, Mehmet Dalman, who is a guy I was unfamiliar with before. He's, he's Cypriot. I'm guessing from his name that he's Turkish Cypriot. Um, yeah, he must be North Cypriot. By the way, how, I was just going to say, just as an aside, how cool is it? Cardiff, right? A Welsh team in an English league with the Malaysian owner, a Scottish manager, a Turkish Cypriot chairman and formerly a head of recruitment who was from one of the stands, right? Yeah. Uh, Apsalyamov. I thought that was... Brilliant. I think that's kind of neat, isn't it? Like, know, talk about, awesome. you, know, you know, United Colors of Benetton. Anyway, we digress on Cardiff and that's more than enough. Uh, so let's go to the South Coast. Southampton and Spurs. Now, obviously, we talked a lot of Spurs last week, but we have to talk about them, I think, a tiny bit more. Now, I want to throw this to you, Roy. When I saw the League Cup, I saw Sherwood going 4-4-2, the flying English wingers. I thought, like, oh, what's he doing here? I thought I didn't expect this because I know the guy a little bit. I think he's a really, really clever guy. I think he's actually would be higher up in football if people didn't view him as intelligent and therefore a bit of a threat. Because sadly, if you're an intelligent footballer, a lot of people see you as uh, potentially a problem. But then this weekend, 4-4-2 again, but it's a very different 4-4-2. And they freaking won. I was at Swansea yesterday and I saw his team selection for the Southampton game. It looked to me, did he, what was Dembélé, Eriksson, and then the two winners. And it looked to me like... And one he, of them was Lamela. Exactly. It looked to me like he was doing his best to prove that you did need experience to be a decent manager. It was like a 14-year-old football manager team selection. It was like, let's put all the attacking players on, we'll score loads of goals. So when I arrived at the, at the Liberty and saw that it was one all, I was surprised that Southampton hadn't put them to the sword. It's great that they won. I didn't watch the game closely enough, so I was writing to be able to comment vastly on it. But... It does suggest, yeah, that, that Sherwood's got some nous about him and that he does have some talent. There's no question he's a good coach. As you say, he's, an, he's a clever guy. He's a consummate politician. He's very, very passionate. He speaks very well. He's, he's not short on self-confidence. I think that's probably fair to say. He deserves a chance. But the kind of irony is that he's been in the background as this kind of hovering presence that Levy really rates. He's obviously want, wanted the job. He's been in contention for it before. They've thought about him a lot as technical director or whatever. And then the really ir- ironic thing is that the chance comes and suddenly Levy's a bit like, mm, I'm not sure if I want to give it to you long term. You know, I'm, I'm a bit torn on it. My personal feeling is that you should earn your spurs a little bit more than just walking straight into a job. But at the same time, you look at a lot of top managers and they get their first job quite high up and the chance is there. It makes sense. I kind of think you maybe have to give it to him just to see how he does. Yeah, I mean, worked out, worked out well for Pep Guardiola and Roberto Mancini and people like that. Yeah, but every, for, every, for every one of those. I know, I know, I know. There's a Roy Keane, yeah. 
His interview after the game yesterday, where he said, I don't want the job for 10 minutes, <laughs> I want it long term. I mean, come on. He, he hasn't been a manager before. Why would Levy give him a four year contract now? Levy's too clever for that. Yeah, right? but why but is he lose, demanding lose, it? Why is he demanding it? Demand, it's, it's come on. You know the way the media works, Julian. It's yeah. a lose lose situation, right? If he had said, oh no, I'm just here to help the club to hit the seat for him and blah, 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 people would have said, well, what kind of a leader are you? Of course he wants to, be, he wants to be a manager, right? Presumably he got his badges because he wants to coach and manage and, 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 and he wants to do well. What fascinates me is the story linking them to Louis van Gaal, because apparently Levy's in Holland. Now, a couple things here didn't add up to me at all. First of all, Louis van Gaal is an international manager, so he's not like he has any club commitments. He can travel, he can move, he can go and see Levy wherever wherever the heck he wants, right? You can go see him in Iceland if he wanted to. Secondly, he's not going to be available until after the World Cup. Imagine a scenario where they appoint van Gaal, Holland stink it up and go out early, given that they're in a group with Chile and Spain, it's entirely possible. Or worse, they go deep into the competition. He doesn't take over the club till later. He has a horrible reputation in terms of dealing with club officials. Doesn't do well with discipline. He's 62 years old. I mean, I think Van Hal is was a genius, is a genius, but that doesn't mean that you're the right guy for this club. Are we all in agreement that this is some kind of brilliant misdirection from Levy? I mean, maybe he's going to the tulip market in Holland, or maybe he's going to <laughs> Holland to go meet a French guy or a German guy. Yeah, exactly. But the, the Dutch press saying that they actually watched a game in Van Hal's house together yesterday. I can just picture myself both on the sofa, sat next to, quite closely next to each other, sat with a cup of tea, and Louis Van Gaal, you know, explaining to him why he's going to do with Ericsson and Lamer and all of that and Levy just noting and it's just brilliant but I don't know I, I would like to see Sherwood really finishing the season which I think he will anyway see how he does and then review everything in the summer whether they, they get a pre-contract with Van Gaal I don't know but I think Sherwood deserves a chance in a way it's just the way he said things after the game yesterday that I was not digging it but um, the Van Gaal story is brilliant because I would love to see him in the Premier League I have to say What I don't understand about Sherwood is why, why doesn't he just come out and say instead of saying I want it for 10 years or whatever just say that of course he wants the job but it's the club's decision blah 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 and just go to Levy and say, look, give it to me till the end of the season. They've known each other for absolutely ages, for more than a decade. Levy rates Sherwood as a coach. He, he sees him as some sort of prodigy, although it means, I think he's 43, which is quite old for a prodigy. Take it to the end of the season and back yourself to do well enough in, in that span of, what, 20 games to win the right to be permanent manager. I agree with Julian to an extent that I'd love to see Van Gaal in the Premier League. But what, what on earth are Spurs doing? So last summer, they don't appoint a 35-year-old because they want a young, promising manager who can work in a, in a structure with a technical director. Then they sack him and don't and get the most autocratic manager in world football. It makes no sense. Well, they haven't gotten him. him. But you know, if, if they do, if they do. Yeah, and then um, they're looking at, I mean, Frank De Boer, I can understand, I think Frank De Boer's an excellent manager. I think they've considered Ronald Koeman. Why on earth would you consider Ronald Koeman? Well, why don't we keep the Dutch thing going? Why not consider Frank Reichard? Well, I mean, why you're well, at it? Van Reichard is an interesting is an interesting case because it, it's bizarre to see a manager who was so highly rated what six years ago just written off completely when Glenn Hoddle can apply for jobs. Glenn Hoddle, he's not worked for seven years since he since he left Wolves because they were rubbish. If you gave it to Reichard, we'd be saying, oh, he's finished. He's been working in Saudi Arabia, blah blah. blah. At least he's been working. Hoddle's not worked for seven years. Seven years ago, Frank Reichard won the Champions League. <laughs> It's a good point. It's extraordinary. I, I think um, I think we're a little bit too far up this Dutch tip, personally. No, I, I'm also thinking, if I'm Daniel Levy, right, and I, I hate to sound pull out the name because it's the most obvious name. If I have Goose Hitting, who is viewed as a slam dunk, and to be fair, he... I think with his team, he kind of is because of his personality and what he does, and who's happy to come in until the end of the season, collect a big bonus, smoke some cigars, hang out in London, uh, and you know, and then go back to wherever it is he goes. Then I do that. But the fact that he hasn't pulled the trigger on Hitting makes me think that um, Hitting's not really interested, or maybe they're interested in him. So at that point, there's no point looking for a manager now, or rather, take all the time you need. I don't see why Levy needs to be needs to rush into a decision now, and I don't think he is rushing into one. Adebayor pulled out of the freezer. I, it was interesting. I was on Twitter, and my timeline was so split between people just slamming Adebayor for being lazy and stupid, and this is his one good game a year, and others coming out and saying, no, AVB is a fool because he froze Adebayor out. Quickly, because we need to move on, but is, is this a flash in the pan from Adebayor? Is, is there... Is he going to be galvanized and motivated in the answer up front alongside Soldado? Or? With, with him, it's, it's only about attitude and motivation. If, if, if he feels like it, it would be, he's a very talented player. There's no doubt about that. He would play well if he wants to. The problem is 
in the last few seasons. He didn't want to win half. I remember the great season he had with Arsenal. We took the train back to Paris together in March and he had already scored 18 goals or 19 goals in the season. And he said to me, I'm done. Even if I don't score anymore now, I've had a great season. And that's all at the Bayor. That is all at the Bayor. He's that kind of guy. And after that, he scored two goals more in the league, I think, from March to May. And that was it. Arsenal missed out on the on the title and all of that this is him if the attitude is right if he wants to if he wants to play if he wants to give 100% he will be a good player for Spurs because he's, he's what they need I think up front with Soldado but if he doesn't want to then he'd be rubbish like he's been too often in the, in the what, last two seasons two or three seasons right yeah no I think that's, that's absolutely spot on I can't add anything to that Adebayor is a wonderfully gifted footballer when he, when he decides he thinks it's appropriate but I do find it slightly baffling that we're so obsessed with Adebayor that he, I mean, he's basically not really been relevant as a top class player for what three years it's weird how he's one of those names that people sort of decide to sell papers like other people are interested in Emmanuel Adebayor why well, it baffles me because he's tall strong and when he shows up to play he's better than yeah but we all know that it's, it's when he shows up and you know that if, he, if he's on the pitch he, he oh, might so you take it as granted he's not going to show up regularly basically you guys both yeah, think this he he's well, not somebody you can have- trust I right. think you have to look at the look at the evidence of his career. But the, the one the one other thing, and it's something that Castorino wrote in the paper today, I think I personally think it's a really good point, is that Vias Boas ostracising Adebayor to the reserves for whatever reason is basically an abdication that he can't manage that player. And that is, in a, in a sense, is an admission that he can't do his job. And yeah. I've got to admit, I, I side with Levy on that. I think that's irresponsible of Vias I beg to differ on this point. I'm not saying Billis Boas was right, but as I, from what I've been told, the motivation uh, was the same one the same motivation that was at City mm-hmm. in terms of why he was treated this way, which is they, they felt that he didn't fit in and they wanted to sell him because he earns an enormous amount of money and they thought, well, if we don't play you, there'll be stuff to pay you, you will accept a pay cut or you'll accept moving somewhere else and you'll be you'll be out of our way. I think it was, from what I understand, it was that more than anything else. A word on Southampton and, and Pochettino, who we all love. I gotta go back to this. Every time I see Adam Lallana, he gets better and better. I mean, you know, he plays on the left, he plays on the right, and, Where's he been? I mean, I know where's he been, but like, was he 25 now? Yeah. If you're Lana, do you think about staying at Southampton? Or are you tempted to move to another club where you could end up like Ashley Young? I think you stay. Really? I think they'll be in the top 10 of the Premier League for the next three or four years. I think if Lana goes to a club that's in the top four or top five, he probably ends up not playing that regularly. And it, I just wouldn't, I think he's brilliant, but you wonder whether he's the sort of player who could come in and out of, out of the side and have as much impact. I think he's, he's at the perfect club for him. All right. Just, just quick, quick rapid fire yeses. All right. Imagine yourself as the manager of these teams. Okay. Would Lallana get in the Liverpool team? Yes. Yes. Would he get in the City team? No. No. Would he get in the Arsenal team? Yes. No. Okay, I thought you were copying for a while there, Roy. <laughs> Would he get in the Everton team? Yes. Would he get in the Chelsea team? Yes. Yes. Would he get in the Newcastle team? Yes. yes. Would he get in Spurs? Yes. Would he get in United? Yes. Uh, no. Yes. I'm not right. sure. I I don't know. I it's it's, it's really true. Obviously, he's got he's got strong ties to the club. Southampton have money. They're ambitious. But um, I think it's one of those dilemmas. But what do you do? What do you do with? But your do you career? think he's so, good enough? Do you think he's good enough to play in a top four club, top four English club? I think so. And I just think he's just such a clever guy. You know, beyond his his, his physical gifts, his leadership, and whatever. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying he's a world beater, but he is a good guy to have in a dressing room. Mm-hmm. He rarely has a bad game. He always contributes, and he's easily good enough to start. You know, is there a guy who on the day can be better than him? Of course. But I don't know. I, I think he's somebody that, that a big team wants to build around. The way Southampton, who you know aren't that far off being a big side, can also build around. All right, enough of this. We're going to do something unusual here in the sense that we're going to talk some European football. Our time is limited, of course. Let's start with uh, La Liga because um, we have a situation where Barcelona and Atletico Madrid, top of the table. You have Real Madrid plugging along behind. Roy, is it a case of Real Madrid not having been as good or is it just a case of actually Barcelona have quietly, along with Atletico Madrid, not so quietly, just basically ground out an incredible series of results? I was really interested by the reaction to City drawing Barcelona in the Champions League because the natural kind of response in, in England certainly was that you know, City You've got the, the firepower to hurt Barcelona, which is definitely true, and that Barcelona are w- weaker than they used to be, which is also definitely true. And then you look at Barcelona and you think, well, actually, they are basically unstoppable in Spain. The fact that Atletico are keeping pace with them is incredible, absolutely incredible. There's no question that that keeps up who the manager of the year in Europe is. It's Simeone all day long. And it's difficult with Barca because they're, they're not what they were, but then what they were was possibly the best side in the history of football. So the fact that they're not what they were means all they are is a, is a step down from the best side ever in the history of football. That's still pretty good. Real had a slightly difficult start, which I, th- I suppose you could kind of expect with a new manager and a, a new £86 million Welshman. They've been pretty good since then. Drop points at Osasuna, obviously. But Barca, yeah, they're, they're just a machine and they're not at the heights that they were. That's not necessarily a criticism. They've added, it may not be the heights of the world, but they've added Neymar, who... Yeah. 
I think he's definitely been progressive and doing the right things, mm-hmm. but you see this enormous upside uh, as well. Is, is the issue maybe just at the back where obviously Valdez has been hurt and is leaving? Macherano, when he plays as a center half, you know, kind of get question marks. Alba and Danny Alves defensively are what they are, and maybe that's more of an issue now with the way Tata Martino plays. Yeah, I mean, I, I still don't know why, unless they, they run out of money, which I don't think it is, but why did they didn't get a centre-half in the summer? They tried Thiago Silva, even probably Marquinhos as well, but... You tried David Luiz too. David Luiz, yeah, and, and but surely that's crying that they need another centre-half because, like, I mean, Batra is a, is a young player, but I don't think he would be good enough for that team or that sort of football. Puyol is... He's my dad's age, and, and I think that's been the, the, the biggest problem. I think Martino has been struggling at the time. I think they've missed Messi massively, obviously. Anyone would, anyway. But uh, I agree with Rory, though. They're still very, very strong, man. I watched the, the game yesterday against Getafe, and they were 2-0 down, and then without Neymar, without Messi, Pedro was fantastic, Fabregas was great, Sergio Roberto looks, looks like a good player. Sergio Roberto is an absolute... I, I mean, you can totally see why they let Thiago Alcantara go. Definitely, uh, the, definitely. Sergio Roberto is just a, he's a freak of nature. And Dongu was on the bench yesterday and scored a few weeks back. It, it's just like, you know, it's, they still look very, very good to me. This is just an, an incredible sign. That, and I think we've, we've got used to it. So you, you kind of forget about Fabregas. Like, you know, if he was in the Premier League, he would be one of the best three players in the Premier League. And he's kind of in and out of the Barcelona side. Do you know what I mean? They yeah. are an incredible thing. A word on, on Atletico, obviously, that they're driven by, by this incredible uh, story that is, that is Diego Costa, a guy who was basically on the scrap heap four years ago as, as a young player. Conventional wisdom is it that the squad isn't big enough to compete in Europe and domestically. Would they be better off just getting knocked out by... AC Milan and concentrating all their efforts domestically? Well, maybe, yeah, I, I think they would probably beat Milan, no disrespect to your... Yes, my, my favourite team. <laughs> yeah, but and, and then probably quarterfinals is where it would end anyway if they play another, like, you know, a, a better team, I say. And then they can focus on the league. I, I, I agree with you, I don't think they've got enough depth in their squad to play both. And it just injuries, so suspensions, the, the, these things catch up with you. And, yeah, and Diego Costa's not going to play on this level all year, is he, I, uh, Roy? Well, I don't know. But, I mean, can he be Suarez-like all year? Well, yeah, but can Suarez be Suarez-like all year? That, that, that's a big question as well. Like, yeah, you wouldn't have thought that Diego Costa would, would be quite so prolific to the entirety of the season. But then, and I agree with you, I was at Milan against Ajax. I think Milan, Milan are nothing special at all. I think Atleti will, 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 will get past them relatively easily to be honest but I don't think they're going to win either so I think they might as well stick with it for as long as they can and if the finish in the Champions League if you get to quarterfinals and they get one of the weaker bigger sides then you wouldn't necessarily bet against them and now I think I think knowing Simeone which I don't I think you probably he just probably just wants to win everything all of the time. He'll just they'll just keep on going for everything. I don't think he'd see it as a blessing in disguise. Yeah, it's one thing which depresses me about Atletico is obviously their club situation and the fact that they're basically in hawk to yeah. an agent. But that's a that's an issue for another time. <laughs> right, moving on to France Ligue 1. It is a quite a title race, right? Because you've got PSG on forty four points, Monaco on forty one, newly promoted Monaco, I should say, mm. on forty one, and Lille on forty. A lot of us were very skeptical about Laurent Blanc for many reasons. Got to say, he's proving me wrong. What do I know? Were you skeptical or did you think? Oh. Very skeptical as well. So he proved us both wrong. I mean, just one thing. First time ever, we've got three teams at the winter break with more than 40 points, which is quite exciting for the second part of the season. Also kind of depressing about the way Europe's, the European football's gone. Was this, it's, a, it's a trend in every league, right? Except for the Premier League this year about yeah. runaway leaders. But go ahead. True. But no, but Blanc, I mean, credit to him again. You know, the good thing I think he has is he knew very quickly that he had to listen to Ibra and Thiago Silva. And that's exactly what he did. And when Ibra said to him, your 4-4-2 that they started the season with just forget about it just bring us back to 4-3-3 put Cavani wide and let, leave me in the centre and Blanc said amen basically to that because that was Ibra because I think he knew that that was better and because he knew that Cavani wouldn't make a fuss about being shipped on the right hand side or the left hand side and I think he's been very good as a listener and to do basically what Ibra and Thiago Silva wanted which I guess when you've got those kind of players in your squad and if you're a clever manager like he is it's probably what you have to do best yeah, I have to say, Roy, about Cavani, like, it's not just the fact that he looks like what our Lord and Savior would look like if he shaved his beard, but a guy who moves for so much money who accepts that, oh, yeah, I'll go and run my butt off on the wing the way I do, you know, for my national team because I love my country and I accept that, but I'll do it at club level too because they pay me a lot of money and I'm asked to do it. That's 
pretty remarkable. We often complain about footballers, but it's it is a, yeah, a sacrifice it's, he's making, right? It's a field of Christmas story, isn't it? Edinson Cavani just sacrificing himself for the team. Yeah, no, but I think success makes up for it, doesn't it? Players are much more willing to kind of put themselves out if they feel as though there's going to be some sort of tangible reward. And with PSG, that obviously will be. It's still, I mean, Lille's the, the defensive until last night. Anyway, Lille's defensive solidity was remarkable. Leon are doing well. You'd expect Monaco to come strong as well. I think that PSG though have to be sort of way out and out favourites for the French title and that means that Cavani as long as things are going well Cavani's probably willing to kind of be out of his comfort zone the question I guess is whether he'd be willing to do that if things weren't going so well A word on Monaco and our friend Crazy Claudio because I know obviously they spent a lot of money but they're three points out this year and they have a situation where a lot of their newcomers obviously James Rodriguez did not have a good start to the mm-hmm. season although he's picked it up of late yeah. and with Falcao it's the reverse suggestions now that he might want to leave is it logical that they're going to fade away and it, can you give me a percentage chance of Falcao leaving now in January? He won't leave in January he will leave in June no in January I think they'll keep him it would look so bad for them to buy him in, in July or June and then sell him in Jan it would make no sense even if he's unhappy and clearly you saw the second half he played the second half on Friday against Valenciennes and looked bloody atrocious and so completely not interested and not bothered I mean they, how can you be second in the table and not be interested in bothering? I, know. I, mean, I, I don't think he's happy to be there and I think he would rather be in another bigger club which is probably right I mean in the first place it was a miracle that Monaco managed to buy him anyway in the first place so I just think they're, they're poor at the back I think Carvalho and Abidal who are 34 and 35 are way past their best and there's certain games where you can't win with them at the back it's as simple as that they're going to buy Otamendi in January I mean who's, who, who's his agent where does he I come wonder, from yeah. I wonder who that, who that yeah, could be right, we, we, we joke about this right but we <laughs> <laughs> we praise Atletico Madrid. Now Monaco, a, at some point, some serious investigative journalist is going to have to take some time out, mm. go visit the people at Doyen Sports, who those who those don't know. It's like an all-star team of agents and football money uh, movers and shakers. And uh, I even hired our pal Simon Oliveira, who used to uh, look after uh, some guy named David Beckham. It, it's got to be affecting the game, right? Yeah, whether it's bad for the game is, is a complex issue, but it is definitely influencing Football, what more do you want? I've had to do a joint top in Spain and Monaco setting in France. Well, so let's move on to a league that is, uh, for now at least, a, a relatively uh, Mendes-free zone. Serie A, Roy, Juventus are top of the table. We all assume with them out of the Champions League and stuff. They're going to wrap it up, make it three. But uh, what should they be doing in terms of thinking of how they can make this team better and and competitive in the Champions League, which is obviously where they want to be. But it's difficult, isn't it? Because you, you look at it, and it's, it's quite hard to pinpoint a weak spot. The midfield, I think, is probably the strongest in Europe, apart from maybe Bayern and Barca. You've got Tevez and Lorente up front, who are both playing very well. You've got that sort of Italian core in the defence. I really like Isler on the right, and Lich Steiner out as well. Asamoah on the left is, is, is maybe not t- quite top quality, but he's, he's pretty good. Oh, poor guy, he's playing out of position. And, I know, I know. But, you know, he's, I, I like Asamoah. So you, you kind of think, you look, look through it and you think, well, where do you go without spending kind of 40, 50 million on three or four players, what, what do you do to improve it? And it's, it's very difficult to see. But the problem I've always thought with the Italian sides in Europe at the moment is the tempo that they play at. I remember watching Juve Napoli about, what, six weeks ago and Juve destroyed Napoli. I've not seen a game for, for ages where neither team pressed. Both teams just had the ball and the other side just waited for them. And I think the problem is that you can't do that in Europe anymore. It doesn't happen in the Champions League. And I think the Italian sides struggle to make that switch between the two different styles of play. At the same time, if Juve had had a slightly easier group in the Champions League, they would have got through. And you'd have been talking about them making the quarters potentially in the semi-finals. They've got a good chance of winning the Europa League. You wouldn't be surprised to see an All-Italian final in that. So yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate about the Champions League. They're a much better side than some of the teams still left in the Champions League. But that's the vagaries of the draw to an extent. Roma have the second longest undefeated streak in the universe after some obscure team called Bayern. <laughs> and it's thanks to uh, the very lovable Rudy Garcia, who I really liked what he did at Lille a couple of years ago. Uh, he was greeted with some skepticism um, in the summer, but it's all working out for them. And now they have Mattia Destro, who's, who's fit again. I think mm. he, can, he can, I mean, he really is an exceptionally gifted player who's obviously been slowed by injuries. Uh, Gervinho's contributing, although also fluffing chances. But that's all right, because he has a lot of good work <laughs> um, until it comes time to shoot. Were you surprised by Garcia's uh, uh, progress or, or instant impact? Yes and no. Yes and no, because I've, I've always rated him as a manager I think he's brilliant he would be 
even better through the years. I think he, he would be a France national team manager in his career at some point as well and do well with, with the country. But and, and no, because it's not easy to adapt to you know, a new culture. When he signed, he didn't speak a word of Italian. First thing he did, his best friend is Italian, has an Italian restaurant in Lille, went to the restaurant and his best mate taught him Italian for an hour and a half, a few words, and he did his first press conference in Italian, which I, I thought was brilliant. He's got that will to learn quickly and he's a very confident man and I think a very talented manager as well. And they've missed Totti so much and I would have loved to see that season with Totti fit from the start until now because I think the gap will be much, much closer between Juve and Roma. But, but what a game we have on the 5th of Jan when, when they both face each other that is going to be incredible and, and it's interesting also just to finish on, on Roma to see that he changed his tactical system this weekend after a few draws in, in the last few games and in that 4-3-3 formation went to a 4-2-3-1 formation with Totti behind Destro which worked really well they won 4 it. I mean the, the opposition was not great but and I think that's the way forward for them maybe that more attacking formation with Totti with Destro with Gervinho with Lalic or, or whoever you put there on the left hand side as well and I think Juve would win it but I think Roma would, would give them a good run Alright we can't leave City out without talking a little bit about your mate, Rafa. They're third in the table. They've got Fiorentina pushing them behind. A lot of people, of course, love Fiorentina. It's a fantastic story. They play fantastic football. And they have Serie A's top score in, uh, in another great story, Beppe Rossi mm-hmm. coming back after nearly two years out. But what's Rafa thinking? Yeah, it's been a sort of, it's been, I'd say, a broadly positive first five months. I guess it's not been uniformly positive. There's been a couple of humps in the road. I think they, they probably took a lot of heart, despite the disappointment of going out in the Champions League. They took the, I would guess they took a lot of heart from the way they went out, beating Arsenal 12 points, all that. Started the season. And Borussia Dortmund. And Dortmund. Yeah, and, and, and Dortmund. I mean, I think I, I was in Naples the day before that game and I had a chat with Rafa and he wasn't expecting at that point. I don't think he, he thought it would take a miracle to get them through and he, in the end he was proved right they needed a miracle. But I think he was encouraged by their performance in, in, in such a tough group. I think he'll be less encouraged by the fact they keep dropping stupid points, yeah. which is kind of hamstring. They're not in the title race anymore. I think he'll still be confident finishing top three. Fiorentina and Inter, I think, probably have to be have to be remembered to an extent as their rivals. That might be the more interesting element of the top end of Serie A towards the end of the season is who gets third rather than who gets first. Because I think Juve will win it relatively comfortably, although Roma is a great story. But I think the, the problem with Napoli is that they bought relatively well in the summer. I think Mertens and Higuain, obviously, are both good signings. I quite like Albiol, but he needs a proper hardcore defender next to him. Callahan as well. Yeah, Callahan's done, done far better than I thought he would. He's a typical Rafa player in that he, he works hard, he's versatile, he plays in a lot of different positions. His movement is excellent. Technically, he's not the best footballer in the world, but he's just what Rafa looks for in one of those attacking positions. Plus, he, may, yeah. not, he may not be the best footballer in the world technically, but he's still Spanish. Which, he is still Spanish. Which makes him pretty darn good. <laughs> exactly. Spanish winger, you um, know, how bad could they be? But what, what, what I would guess, and I, I, I don't want to sound like Rafa's spokesman, but I, I would guess that in January they will be looking to sign a defensive midfielder and a central defender, and I think that might make the difference because they do have a, a decent squad at Napoli. They've got a lot of good players, probably more than Fiorentina and Inter. The defensive midfielder, the thinking at the moment seems to be it might be Donalons from Lyon, yeah. and I, I know they love Mascherano. He's also he's, he's tried to get Daniel Agra on loan from Liverpool, which would also make sense. So I think if they can strengthen the spine of the team, there is potentially a very good side there. It's not quite there yet. Right now, moving on to uh, what used to be known as the Hipsters League of Choice, the Bundesliga. We love the packed stadiums. We love the low ticket prices. We love the fact that I think there have been four nil-nil draws all season long, and they score a million goals a game. But let's face it, there's no title race here whatsoever. What would shock me is Bayer Leverkusen, who are like a million points behind Bayern Munich and, and have played more games. Until two weeks ago, they were on pace to get the third highest total points in Bundesliga history after the 91 that Bayern set last year when they set the record and after the you know 150 that they're going to get this <laughs> season I mean, first of all Bayern will get better right I mean they have margins of improvement right yeah. there's no question there yeah and they're already better than they were last season I think and, and Pep is doing a great job and they will get even better and they make a profit every year so they can continue buying everybody should they want <laughs> yeah, to and, exactly. and still be at least rich. everybody from Germany yeah did, did they invent financial fair play <laughs> just to kind of seriously yeah, no, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like the Euro. It's something the Germans invented to punish everybody else. Uh, it's, it's shocking. Uh, now, speaking of punish, um, Borussia Dortmund have uh, obviously uh, really struggled with injuries uh, this season. And, uh, you know, they're kind of making the point that, oh, but when all our injured guys come back, we'll be fine. Yeah, that might be true in the Champions League. I'm wondering, domestically, is their top four finish? Is that in question, given the way Gladbach are going as well, given, uh, uh, obviously, Wolfsburg behind pushing and, and Leverkusen, who have, 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 well, I don't think are that good, but they still have a healthy cushion up there? Nah, Dortmund will finish top four. They might not finish second because Leverkusen might have, have enough of an advantage. And yeah, like you said, Gladbach are, are turning into quite a good story as well. I, I really like Lucien Favre as a manager. I think he's a, he's a pro.
properly can he manage it? They've got a good side like that. No, you don't want to finish top four when they've got when they when they have got bear in mind their entire first choice defence is out. They've got that intense style that always is, is always going to sort of run the risk of exhausting the players. But any side would struggle with the injuries they've had. The question is whether that's kind of systemic to the way they play. They, they are going to risk injury every so often. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. To but no, they'll finish top four, no question. Finally, just a little anecdote. The Bundesliga have their own version of, of Janus Island. In other words, uh, you know, a guy who was born in the mid-90s who's tearing it up. It's a guy named Timo Werner from, from Stuttgart. Stuttgart yeah. uh, he was in front of <laughs> Last night, I, I sort of chucked out on, on Twitter. You know, I just wrote Werner or Janus Inundated by responses uh, about maybe half of them angry Liverpool fans who wrote <laughs> Raheem Sterling. But what I wanted to, to, was wanted to ask here, I, I was shocked because I thought how many people would have seen Timo Werner? He's only started 10 games in, in, in the Bundesliga. Um, I've only seen him on television. And then it occurred to me, it's, it's football manager, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Or, or FIFA, or, you know, or, if you play, yeah. Or, 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 or the equivalent yeah, yeah. thereof. Have you guys seen enough of him? To Yeah, I have, I have actually. And how, do you, how does he compare to Januzaj? He's very exciting, like Januzaj, and he's a bit younger as well. It doesn't make it nearly a year younger. Yeah, and and I just love those players, and I think we're going to see more and more of them. You know, coming through France, Germany, and maybe not England too much, but you know, there's that's the, that's the new style of player, the new type of young players coming coming through. Loads of pace, loads of skills. Maybe not as clever yet because they're very young and, and need some experience and need to to get more clever on the pitch. But the, I mean, Werner is so exciting. He's such an exciting player, like Yanuzai is to be fair. Like Martial is in France, slight different player, but. Again, a lot of talent there. All right, time now for some quick hits. Manchester United hammer West Ham. Welbeck again does a job as an RVP stand-in. But Julian Yanezai, who we just talked about, he gets booked for diving. And I sense something of a disconnect. On Match of the Day, they crucify him. Gary Neville, who I think we all like and respect, defends him on Twitter, saying that he had to jump to avoid getting hurt. Julian, you played to a higher level than I did. You probably played to a higher level than Rory did, too. What's your take? I'm more Gary Neville team on that one. I'm more really? team Neville. Yeah, I do think. It's a bit like we had... Harsh that, booking, then. Well, yeah. I, we had that debate with Bale last season as well, and to do quick, I think those players, with the pace they have, the skills they have, sometimes even just... The movement of the defender, even if he doesn't touch him, make them unbalanced and make them fall or they have to jump because they get scared of getting kicked all around. And Januzaj is kicked a lot. Every single game he's played for United, he's been kicked everywhere on the pitch. And I think, you know, it's fair. I don't think he, you know, intended to cheat. I don't think he's that at all. Well, Nick, Gary never made the point. He drew a parallel between Shawcross and, and, and Ramsey and how I, nobody's saying it was a foul, but if, if Ramsey, or it was intentional, but if, if Ramsey had fought like Januzaj at the moment, he might not have got hurt. I, that that a bit of a stretch because that's yeah. I because I, I also thought this is, I understand what he's saying. I don't know if this is the best example of it. Manchester City win their second straight away from home and show plenty of character in pulling away after they suffer the trauma of squandering a two-goal lead and seeing their defensive hero Vincent Company with a bizarre and unlucky own goal. Rory, do they still look like champions to you? And um, what do you make of the Mullenstein effect with Adele Terapt, who of course is better than you, as a lone striker? Yeah, I think Mullenstein's doing well. It's been an encouraging start. I, I still don't think he's quite as good a manager as he thinks he is, but he, it has been an encouraging start. Uh, City do look like champions. The more they win away from home, the more you, you feel they're going to start sort of cranking into gear and really kind of pulling away. They're the one team capable of stringing sort of 10 or 11 straight victories together, I think. The one thing I would like to say is, how on earth did Vincent Company cut his eye in the course of scoring that own goal? <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I think he wants to leave 2013 behind him, frankly. It was all doom and gloom at the Britannia when Mark Hughes took over and uh, coach tightened the purse strings. But hey, they beat Villa. They've lost just once since October and they're in the top half of the table. Julian, would you rather praise Crouchy for his two goals the way everybody seemed to do, even though the fact that that trebled his total for the season to three? Or would you maybe talk about how perhaps Hughes is proving some doubters wrong? I'll talk about Hughes because everyone who's seen boring Stoke under Pulis and more intensely Stoke with with Hughes then would we noticed the change and I think he's, he's even made Steven and Zonzi look decent on the ball which is a hell of an achievement so fair play and, and credit to, to Mark Hughes and That's really harsh on Zonzi and Zonzi's a good player It is but there's, he, he's been playing so well in the last two months much much better than before I mean Hughes is not asking him the same kind of stuff than Pulis. West Brom avoid defeat for the first time in five games as they grab a point at home against Hull thanks to Vidra's late goal. Uh, Rory, do they have enough to stay up even if they get an average manager in? Or is this one of those situations where they absolutely need to get it right otherwise it's all doom and gloom? Well, it sounds like they're going to get Mackay who we all know is the greatest manager in the universe so it's probably not going to be a problem. But I think West Brom's squad is quite good. They made some curious choices in the summer in terms of strikers and each to be for £6 million pounds is baffling, completely baffling. Vidra, I've been a little bit disappointed with this season. I thought he'd 
he, he would be ready to sort of kick on and make the step up after doing so well with Watford for two-thirds of last season. But you, you look at West Brom's side and there's far too much experience and knowledge and know-how and, and ability in that side to go down. But there's no question they obviously won't have quite as good a season as they did last year. Newcastle aren't regressing to whatever mean they're supposed to regress to because they're still up there. They destroyed Crystal Palace and remain sixth in the table. Four points from Champions League football. Uh, they have lots of French guys, so I guess, Julian, I need to ask you, uh, how much of this is down to Joe Kinnear and the impact he's having, or is this one joke that's just getting a little bit old? It is getting a little bit old, but he's nothing down to Joe Kinnear whatsoever. They've had, you know, really very good last three months. I think Pardew needs credit. And also Johan Kabay, the most clever player in the Premier League at the moment. Fantastic player. And every time I watch him play, it's just I think he's, he's just so good. And he's not even the best French central midfielder in the world. No. There you go. Ross Barkley and Seamus Coleman power uh, Everton past Swansea. Rory, you were at that game. Now, I can't help but think that these two are better under Martinez, or Martinez, as some of you people like to call him, uh, than they were under Moyes. And it can confuses me because I'm a very big David Moyes fan. I really am. I'm not being sarcastic. Can you care to explain? Do you have a theory? I don't know how much better Coleman is now than he was under Moyes. I think Coleman was excellent under Moyes. He was played as a right winger quite frequently, whereas he's obviously been more effective as a right back. He's also scoring more goals at the moment. But I don't see the vast improvement in Coleman. I think he's been excellent consistently. Barkley, I think it's more plain and simple he's just been trusted more he's playing every week he's been played in, in, a, in a number of positions depending on the game depending on the opposition and he's really he's really flourishing but I think what's most remarkable about Ross Barkley is that last year he went on loan to Leeds and Neil Warnock decided he wasn't good enough <laughs> what sort of decision is that? <laughs> Stop it. And Gab, one question for you, if I may. Uh, last night was the Derby de la Madonina in Milan. Which team was less bad? Well, um, you know, your take on it, since uh, obviously you saw it as well. And I, I thought it was, it was a physical game. There just wasn't too much quality on display, but they went for it. I thought Milan tried really, really hard. Manzati's strategy seemed to be like, oh, let us pretend we're really, really bad, and let's all just sit back, soak up the pressure, wait for them to tire and score. To be fair to Inter, though, in the end, they, they should have had the penalty Mm-hmm. Um, Muntari should have been sent off and in the end they won 1-0 I look at this Inter team and I imagine if they're ever going to be any good how many of the starting 11 will be a part of it and I just conclude maybe Handanovic maybe Taidet in some parallel universe where he becomes good Rodrigo Palacio is, was fantastic but he's obviously old as for Milan, um, roll on Honda and Rami. And um, if you're a Milan fan, you hope that next year, possibly with Seydorf, brings something better because this team needs some serious rebuilding. Are you worried by, by AC Milan? Are you worried for AC Milan or by AC Milan? You know you Does it might get relegated? You well, well, no, that, that this, they're 13th at Christmas and it's, it's such a poor season. Uh, they weren't that much lower last year, of course, and they're yeah. storming back into, into the top three. No, I, I think Case Gahonda is going to help. I just think they made so many bad decisions in the summer, starting with the return of Kaká. They need, they need a plan, they need some vision. It looks like they're building towards it, but it's just very hard because you have an owner who I don't think really takes that much of an interest anymore. Mm-hmm. But in the end, everybody kind of you know fears him. And, and when he's called in, sometimes to, to make a decision, he makes a decision very quickly and uh, and that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the year. So as successful as they've been under this owner, probably would be best if he exited the scene at this stage or simply said, I am now no longer going to be involved at all. You guys sort it out for yourselves. But you're not going to do that because, you know, he left this weird power sharing agreement behind. Yeah. Time to say goodbye and happy holidays to all of you. Next week, we've two full rounds of Premier League matches to reflect upon, aside from Arsenal and Chelsea. They include City and Liverpool on Boxing Day, Chelsea and Liverpool, Newcastle and Arsenal, Everton and Southampton on the 29th. I am stoked. I am excited. Almost as excited as I was going into this podcast today. Do not forget, you can see all the goals and the rest of the highlights from every Premier League game before anyone else, simply by downloading the Times app to your smartphone. Thank you to Julian Lawrence and Rory Smith. Remember, we're out there on Twitter. You can hit us up. We're going to be back at some point. Uh, I assume it's going to be the 30th. But anyway, time to go. So uh, have a wonderful holiday season. And uh, it says here we'll see you on the other side, but we won't. We'll still be seeing you in 2013. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away.